uncovering a mystery at the center of our galaxy. You're listening to Are We There Yet? A radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. At the center of our galaxy lives a supermassive black hole. It's a region of space where gravity is so strong nothing can escape it, not even light. While the name supermassive might make it seem like these things are easy to spot, they're really not. In 2019, a group of telescopes and scientists managed to image the first ever black hole, one at the center of galaxy M87. That same group of scientists say they've got a major announcement related to our galaxy later this week. To talk more about the Event Horizon Telescope and what it may have spotted, we'll speak with Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Then, when will humans step foot on Mars? It's a topic of discussion at this year's Human to Mars Summit, taking place later this month. We'll talk with Explore Mars CEO Chris Carberry about the challenges that lie ahead and what government agencies and private industry are doing to get people on the red planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. What's at the center of our galaxy? That's a question that might get an answer later this week from a group of scientists working on the Event Horizon Telescope. We know there's a supermassive black hole there, but we've never actually seen it. That could soon change, thanks to the EHT, which imaged the first ever black hole back in 2019. To talk more about the mystery of black holes and the efforts to confirm their existence, we're joined by UCF physicist Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell, who also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Addie, Jim, Josh, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having us. So let's start with, with the Event Horizon Telescope. What What is this thing? It's not one telescope, right? How does, how does this EHT work? Yeah, it's really a collaboration. As you said, it's not a single telescope, so I think it's formally known as the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration uh, because it is a bunch of previously existing telescopes working together to act as a single telescope uh, to make this these incredible observations that uh, can detect uh, light from the event horizon near supermassive black holes. Yeah, so it's called Very Long Baseline Interferometry, VLBI is the technical uh, term, but it's basically like you have telescopes, and in this uh, case, they're usually sort of millimeter uh, and uh, wavelength telescopes in different locations all around the world, and you combine the light from those telescopes uh, with sophisticated um, techniques to, to make a brighter signal. Jim, what are they actually looking for? Well, the primary focus of this telescope uh, is looking at black holes, specifically trying to have the ability to see something as small as the event horizon of a supermassive black hole. Now, of course, supermassive black holes sound like they're huge, but they're also very far away. And so uh, seeing their event horizons has been a huge challenge. So you need a telescope that's something like the size of Earth 
So it took this interferometry technique to kind of fashion, in a sense, a, a telescope the size of Earth. And, and of course, back in, what was that, 2019, we finally did succeed, or they finally did succeed, in, uh, in capturing an image of a black hole where you could see the shadow of the black hole itself, which is fantastic. When, when one thinks of a black hole, we think, and especially with a name like supermassive black hole, you think that these would be easy to spot, right? They're sucking in all this stuff, they're supermassive, but they're actually really difficult to spot, right? Spotting the, the, well, seeing them in any detail is challenging, right? So we can certainly, uh, a lot of these things have big, what we call accretion disks surrounding them, so, so big uh, donuts of very hot gas surrounding them that are very bright, and we can see a lot of those. And so almost every big galaxy we look at, we see one of these bad boys in the center, but you're not seeing the details. You're just seeing the bright light from that uh, donut of hot gas. If you want to see the details, if you want to see the, the actual shadow of the black hole itself, that's the real challenge. Josh, as, as Jim alluded to in, in 2019, this this um, group of scientists released some pretty incredible images of, of the event horizon. Um, how kind of game-changing was that for uh, for understanding universe and, and the phenomenon of black holes? Well, it was... Incredibly exciting because, you know, as we've mentioned, we'd never seen this before. Uh, at the same time, what we saw was kind of what we expected to see. Um, we saw this was the supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy called M87, uh, much more massive than the one at the center of our own galaxy. And uh, as Jim said, we could see the shadow of the black hole. The, the black hole, no light can escape from the black hole itself. So. The Event Horizon Telescope refers to the closest point to the black hole from which light can escape, and there's this beautiful distortion of uh, the paths that light take uh, in the presence of that very strong gravitational field. So we see light from behind the black hole bending around it uh, and, uh, and reaching us. And, uh, and so it, it made these things, I think, viscerally real in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's a very important uh, uh, advance. Mm -hmm. Addy, what was, what was your reaction when, when the findings came out in 2019? Um, I mean, I think a lot of us were super excited about sort of the nitty gritty details. So um, as Josh mentioned, right, the, the image itself is sort of just a fuzzy ring, a fuzzy donut. Um, <laughs> but but the amount of detail that goes into that image is amazing. And like the amount of behind the scenes work and uh, the techniques they have to use to combine this are very groundbreaking. So um, I was reading about some of the, t I was refreshing my memory about some of the technical details, but like just the amount of like processing they have to do to get the data in real time and then they like store it on hard drives that get flown to a, a location where it can all be combined and processed and then scientists around the world are working on this. So from that sort of collaboration and really advancing the, the forefront of science and being right at the cutting edge of some of what the technology can do, it's, it's super amazing. And Jim, Jim, why is it important for, for you know, these kind of observations in, in better understanding black holes? So yeah, black holes have been something that were predicted by, you know, since the 19-teens, right, since Einstein, uh, and, like, my mother still does not believe in the existence of black holes, or at least didn't before uh, these pictures came out, <laughs> uh, because predicting them via theory is one thing, but seeing them uh, is, is another thing. I think the kind of most remarkable aspect of this is how well the data, the actual images and data matched the predictions that we had previously made. 
Uh, and that, that's, you know, testing Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is the theory on which all our understanding of black holes is based, is a, it's a challenging thing because you really need these extreme environments where gravity is crazy strong, like right around a black hole, and those have been really hard to see. And now that we've seen them, what we see matches precisely what, what Einstein and, and those after him would have predicted we've seen. So I think that's a really fantastic success. A black hole denier is not something that I thought we'd talk about today, uh, but that... Uh... <laughs> They're real. I, I need a minute. <laughs> I, I mean, but I'll just, you know, those things, you know, black holes are very like science fictiony type of things, obviously. I mean, literally, and in tons of science fiction, you use them to do all kinds of things. And, and when you talk about the crazy bending of space and time, it sounds ridiculous. That's not a thing that can happen in real life, but it's predicted. And, and so actually seeing it, viscerally seeing it, like Josh said, it is really a, uh, a powerful thing, and I think it's going to bring my mom aboard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say it is. It is kind of you know. It's it's hard to wrap your head around it, especially for for someone like myself who's not a scientist like like you all to kind of imagine what this would actually look like, what what it would be like. And so seeing these images really you know kind of solidify that in my mind. I mean, how how important are these findings for not just science, but but for the public understanding of this, and and for us to get a better idea of what these actually are. Well, uh, I mean, I think we're we're coming back to the same thing that seeing is believing in, in some sense. And so uh, while we have known about the existence of black holes for decades and we have had essentially incontrovertible evidence for them from all of their effects on their surrounding uh, regions, some of that stuff is a little bit arcane or technical to explain in, you know, even in an astronomy class. Uh, you're talking about the velocities of objects that are nearing, moving near them and, and how that requires a certain gravitational uh, field and so forth. Uh, but, but then you're actually seeing this black shadow and light from behind it bending around it uh, and in, in just the way that the theory uh, from general relativity predicts. Um, it's part of what advances society's uh, overall uh, scientific literacy, if you will. Um, and I think that, that that's a very important thing to do. And makes Jim's mom a believer, right? Right. <laughs> also very important. Turns out she's the last holdout. <laughs> I like to believe they don't exist just because I'm always scared when we have these conversations about black holes. But uh, I, I feel like that that's not going to be the case. <laughs> well, I think that's... Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about black holes, too, is there are in a lot of literature and sci-fi, right? And you think of it as just being this giant thing that's going to suck everything in and destroy everything around it. But, like, they still obey all the same laws of gravity and physics. And um, so part of the reason they're so hard to see is because the black hole itself is, like, pretty small in the sky. And so you have to have really good sort of zooming in to be able to see that, right? Um, and, but, like they do just affect sort of this area around them and seeing that area right around it is really hard to do. And so fortunately you won't, from here you're safe, Brendan. That's the thing to always know is that from here you're still safe. I, I do. I, I, I appreciate that, but I'm sure Jim will, will um, give me a fact to scare me for the rest of the day. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so we know, so we know what, what um, this, the EHT uh, uncovered and released in, in 2019 um, they're they're teasing a, a a new major announcement later this week. What could what could it possibly be? I mean, what what might be the new findings 
I'm, I'm asking you to put your, your speculative hats on here. So, well, for one thing, we're, we all pretty much know is that they're going to they're going to reveal something about the black hole at the center of our galaxy. So from the very beginning, the EHT has said that there's kind of two main objects that they want to look at the black hole at the center of M87, which we just were talking about. Um, and the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Those those objects both have about the same size on our sky, um, which is, by the way, tiny. It's like, you know, a tennis ball on the moon or something like that. Uh, trying to see that. Um, it's turned out that the, the black hole at the center of our galaxy has been harder to take pictures of for a, a, a few different reasons. But I think that this week they're going to release some images of those. And uh, for my money, they've kind of been teasing that there may be some really interesting new results. I mean, the black hole is the black hole. There's not going to be anything insane about that, but the, the, this accretion disc, this donut of gas around it, I think is not well understood. And I think they're going to have some really cool things to say about that, uh, that disc and how it gets made and, and why it's as bright or dim as it is and, and so forth. Can you describe like, wh- what do we, what do we know about that black hole at the center of the galaxy? What, what, what would it look like if you know, if we were there, obviously not too close. But but what does it look like? Well, the the black hole at the center of our galaxy is what Jim about four million times the mass of the sun, uh, hence the name supermassive. Uh, there are galaxies. Uh, the one that was previously imaged is is many times more massive than that. Again, the black hole itself is aptly named. It is uh, has no light escaping from it. And then, as Jim was mentioning, there's an accretion disk around it. The material around it flattens into a disk. It's a very common process in various astrophysical settings. It's the reason all the planets in the solar system pretty much orbit in the same plane. Um, And in the vicinity of a black hole, the orbital speeds are very high, the temperatures are very high, and that produces a lot of energy, which produces emission that we can see. That's the stuff that we've been able to see and how we know about black holes anyway is by seeing the stuff, the light that's emitted from the thing around the black hole. It would be a very intense radiation environment, not a safe place for you to go, Brendan. <laughs> well, well, thanks for putting on your speculative hats and giving us some some context. We've been speaking with uh, University of Central Florida physicists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell. Uh, thank you all for joining us again. Thank you. Thanks. Looking forward to seeing what we see. Still to come, how close are we to putting humans on Mars? A summit later this month aims to answer that question. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. When will humans step foot on Mars? It's a topic of discussion at this year's Human to Mars Summit, taking place starting on May 17th. We're joined by Explore Mars CEO Chris Carberry about the challenges that lie ahead and what government agencies and private industry are doing to get people on the red planet. Chris, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you for having me on. So before we get into the summit, Chris, I want to chat about uh, your organization, Explore Mars. Um, you know, broadly speaking, what is the mission of, of this organization? Well, it's right in the title. You know, and essentially our goal is to make sure that we have humans on the surface of Mars by the mid-2030s. And we do this through a, a range of, op- of activities, you know, between conferences like the Humans to Mars Summit coming up soon. We do workshops that bring various stakeholders within the space community together, both the moon and Mars and science, international, commercial and government players, to make sure that we're all moving in sync and that there are synergies between everything and that we can find common ground so we can efficiently move forward as possible to achieve the goal of getting humans on Mars. And if we're going to the moon first, how can we use the moon in a way that's going to advance the goal of getting to Mars and not be a hindrance to that goal? Chris, when when we started this show um, a little more than six years ago, it was focused on when we, we would be getting humans to Mars. That's why the show is called Are We There Yet? That was the focus of the show a long time ago. Um, it, it's it's since broadened out. But but in those past six years, I've, I've seen that there has been a lot of development. Right now, in, in 2022, what are some of the big challenges that still lie ahead to meet that, that goal of putting humans on the surface of Mars by, by the 2030s? Well, one thing is the thing that's always been the challenge is policy. And we have now, to be clear, Space, Moon, Mars has more support, has bipartisan support. One of the few things, few major policy issues that have strong bipartisan support, public support, and a lot of international buy-in. So that's good. But nonetheless, we still seem to be moving rather slowly and haven't been been very cautious at when we're actually going to commit to getting people on the moon or other on on Mars, and. So even in the most recent um, proposed budget by the administration, the Biden administration, they kind of shifted the timeline a little further out, saying we'll get there by no later than 2040. And so even though it's just a few years, that makes a big difference, meaning not necessarily positively. We need to we want to make sure we keep ambitious goals, even if we're not able able to achieve them. It will help us actually get there sooner than we would have otherwise. Because, you know, for as you know, are we there yet? It's a great question. Because for Mars, we've been talking about it for over 50 years. And it's always been 20 years out for perpetually. People ask me, why the rush? Why the rush? We have been talking, the United States has been formally talking about getting the Mars for over 50 years. And it's always been 20 years away. So it's not a matter of why, you know, why the rush? Why are we taking so long? And we need to focus because we will never get it done unless we really focus and do it, you know, aggressively. You know, within, you know, we don't want to, you know, take needless risks, but we don't want to be so risk averse that we never get anything done. And that's the case whether it's a government-run program, commercially, or what's most likely going to be a hybrid, whereas we have commercial, government, and international players coming together to achieve this goal. Mm-hmm. One of the, the speakers at the Humans to Mars Summit is someone that I've talked to quite a bit um, in my reporting, um, and he always tells me it's not an issue of rocket science, it's an issue of political science, and this is NASA <laughs> Administrator Bill Nelson. How do, you, how do you change that tide, though? How do you get that buy-in to, to make that policy take these ambitious goals? It's hard. I mean, as I said, I think we have a good starting point, 
And I think, and we are closer than we've ever been. I mean, if you had asked me 20 years ago, we'd probably say that also, but we really are now because, as you <laughs> mentioned, we have, hopefully, our Artemis 1 will launch sometime this summer. You, know, you have Starship that's on the pad as well. You have all these other players that are, you know, developing, but not just, as I said before, but you all, not just the big rocket companies, but all these different systems being created. And so we just need to find a way, not only with the policy, but also show the policymakers, you know, how we are going to utilize all these things, all these elements, which is much different than back in the Apollo program, where it was just straightforward government program, one reason, beat the Soviet Union, it worked well, but it did not, it was not a sustainable program because it was only one reason to go, beat the Soviet Union. Now we have a lot of reasons, and I think part of this is just to show, like with the commercial players, show that they're still making momentum and make sure all the different players, you know, express this, that we believe we can get this done and, uh, you know, and see... I think also articulating what a large portion of society this will impact. Because, as I was alluding to before, you have the big rocket companies, of course, but thousands and thousands of small businesses and innovators around the country and the world are going to be needed for this to enable sustainability in space. And many of them don't even know it yet. And that's part of what we're doing. And that's what part of what we'll be talking about at the Humans to Mars Summit coming up. You know, what... What, you know, what innovations are needed, you know, that will enable sustainability, but by looking at the problem through the Mars lens, you know, like extracting water from arid areas and utilizing it, or how do you, how can we improve or, or manufacture or grow food on Mars? How can that be brought back to improve life on Earth, but also to create markets here on Earth? And so I'm trying to educate, not only bring in some of these non-traditional players, but also let them know that they may not have otherwise known that they may have a technology that could be critical in the future of space exploration. And I think I think that would be very exciting to a lot of player, you know, small companies around the world if they're working on some interesting, innovative technology that they hadn't been really thinking about in terms of Mars or the Moon. So that. We like connecting the dots. That's one of the things we love to do as an organization is to reach out, see how how we can connect all these dots to different players around society. And we found it's very easy to do so, but people often don't think about it. Mm-hmm. I was really excited to see some of the things that you will be tackling at the Humans to Mars Summit later this month, like that kind of spinoff technology and how this stuff will benefit humanity at large. But is there any particular um, themes at the Humans to Mars Summit that, that you yourself are, are really excited about? Um, I mean, it, this is really a who's who of, of space exploration. When you look at, at, at the speakers and moderators that are going to be here, it might be hard for you to pick, but, but what are you really excited about? Well, you know, I've already, I don't want to go too much on the same topic, but of course we have one on innovation, sustainability, and Mars. That's going to be docking exactly what I was just talking about. So I'm really excited about that one. It's one about food development as well. Um, there are, of course, key mission architecture taught discussions like nuclear versus chemical propulsion. It's a really important question as we're talking about this because it's a big battle, or I wouldn't call it battle, but 
like heated discussion on whether we should wait for nuclear to te- nuclear technology, nuclear propulsion specifically, uh, to go to Mars. And we're all for nuclear propulsion, but we are concerned that we that we do not want that technology to be in the critical path for Mars. Meaning, we can go to Mars with current chemical technology, and so. We don't want to wait for a a revolutionary change that may actually take decades, you know, to always wait for the magical solution to be able to shorten the mission time to be able to go to Mars. So those are the sorts of things, looking at the trade-offs between chemical and nuclear, as well as, you know, how that impacts timelines and mission trajectories, which is very important for the overall policy, but it's not talked about. All those nuances of it aren't talked about a lot. People on the nuclear side will say, oh, of course it's better, and the chemical side will argue the other way, but usually you don't hear the whole argument. So I'm very interested to hear how that one will go. We have a session on STEAM entertainment. So it's not just the science and engineering but looking at how the entertainment community and the science and space community interact and how they can expand this partnership. Brilliant partnership over decades, you know, with Hollywood and entertainers collaborating and figuring out ways to well, generate excitement about space. I mean, it's not always out of passion from entertainment. You know, they want to make money, but there is a remarkable amount of passion within the entertainment industry regarding space exploration. So we just love finding ways to expand that network, expand that partnership. Mm-hmm. And and Chris, how, how can we participate in, in the Human to Mars Summit? Well, it's taking place in person at the George Washington University Betts Auditorium on May 17th through 19th in Washington. So people are welcome to register, and there are a lot of wonderful secondary events, you know, like receptions. We'll have a whiskey reception also with Ardbeg Whiskey, um, a good speaker's lunch with Mark Hartsman, the author of The Big Book of Mars, and multiple book signings. But if people can't come, we will also be announcing our webcast, and that's a free webcast. Now, it's not an excuse not to come in person, uh, because there's a lot of stuff you won't be able to participate in when you're not there in person. But we hope we'll certainly hope we're going to have tens of thousands of people tuning into our webcast as well. Well, Chris Carberry is the CEO of Explore Mars. Uh, The Humans to Mars Summit is happening later this month. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. More details about the summit are online at exploremars.org. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit wmfe.org slash yet. And stay connected to this show. Be sure to follow us on our various social media channels. You can give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The show's at AWTY Space, Are We There Yet Space, get it? Or I'm at Space Brendan. We're also on Instagram at AWTY Space. And more space news and headlines online at WMFE.org space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.